Gracious Heavenly Father, we devote this time to you, and we expect good things from you. You are gracious. You are our teacher. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, speak to us through your word, make it clear to us, help us to receive it with joy and to embrace what it has for us. And would you give us understanding in all things, Lord, give us the mind of Christ as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on in. Come on in. Well, I've had quite a time trying to figure out how to address the doctrine of the Sabbath. We've studied it in the pastor's college as part of the theology of worship course that we started, um, we inaugurated this year, threw the champagne bottle against it and let her go for maiden voyage. And we are learning as we go along. I'm learning, even in prep preparing for this, I'm learning new things all the time. A lot of it though, I'm gonna read for you, first of all, those sheets will not become important for quite some time. <laughs> so just put them away for a moment. And a lot of this, of the doctrine of the Sabbath, I am not actually going to deal with. I'm going to read for you, first of all, what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. And then what I want to do is just show, I think, as much from Scripture as I can, what there is in it for us. What's in the Sabbath for you and me as believers, particularly in the corporate gathering, and so that a lot of the, and once you see that, once you embrace it and, and find it a delight, find what is delightful about, that's available to you in worship. A lot of the doctrines of the Sabbath and the arguments, which are very sophisticated and complex and intense, um, are irrelevant. They're just completely irrelevant and a waste of time. But listen to this. This is what the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, says regarding of religious worship and the Sabbath day. This is the seventh and eighth articles of that chapter. As it is of the law of nature that, in general, a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God. So it's just like a natural law that sometimes should be set apart. Can close that door for the worship of God. So, in his word, by a positive moral and perpetual commandment, a positive moral and, keyword, perpetual commandments, abiding or binding on all men all times, in fact, that's what he says, binding all men in all ages, in all ages. he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath, to be kept holy unto him which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. In the last article, Article 8, this Sabbath is to be kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations. This is when people start to gnash their teeth. So he, the whole day is to be kept set aside 
for contemplating God and his works, setting aside your thoughts about your worldly employments and recreations, video games, movies, whatever, sports, but also it is to be taken up, the whole time is to be taken up in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, that's a good summary of what is the reformed doctrine of the Sabbath that's passed down to us from the Protestant reformers, particularly in the English-speaking world because this is the English Puritans. This is the, the, the summation of faith that came, comes to us from our reformed fathers in England. And it's what's negatively referred to or derogatorily referred to as Sabbatarianism, where you set aside the whole day, 24-hour period, for contemplating God and his works, not giving yourself to distraction, recreation, worldly employments. And, and even though this doctrine has been handed down to us from the godliest of saints, from the men of whom the world was not worthy, the godliest of men. We do not enjoy talking about this doctrine. This is not something we lead with. This is not something we embrace. This is not something, um, it, it is something that we have ignore, we have rejected, gnash our teeth at. The idea that the fourth commandment could have any kind of abiding, objective claim on our lives, <coughs> either as American citizens or as Christian citizens, has gone out the window. Listen to this. The 20th century has seen a massive shift away from Sabbath keeping in America, and it's one small part of a shift away from honoring God's laws across the board. From the earliest days of American jurisprudence, so from the earliest days that law appeared in this land, state and local governments have enacted what are called blue laws. These laws originally were aimed at curbing moral offenses, personal offenses against Sabbath keeping. So if you were found to be gambling or drinking on the Sabbath, the civil magistrate would come down on you. Missing church also. But with the decline of American Puritanism and religious-based governments, Sunday laws transitioned from the realm of private morals to that of public commerce. And so Sunday closing laws, forbidding business from operating on Sunday, were introduced across America in the 1800s, not out of concern that workers deserved a day of rest, but out of respect for the Christian Sabbath. Businesses were closed out of respect for the Christian Sabbath, so that there were no excuses. Everyone had opportunity to go to church opportunity being the key word. This is what we want scripture to make clear for us in a minute. What an opportunity it is. And as Christians, as the church, we've gone very much, oh sorry, this changed. I have to explain that. Since the 1960s, although the Supreme Court ruled that this is not in violation of the Constitution, that blue laws are perfectly in keeping with the Establishment Clause, they're not a violation of it. Many of our state and local blue laws have been repealed since the 1960s. Those that haven't been repealed are hardly enforced, um, except for those pertaining to the sale of alcohol in the great state of Indiana, which is more a holdover from the temperance movement than it is from Sabbath keeping or respect for the Sabbath. 
And as Christians, we've gone right along with this decline in Sabbath remembrance with our culture. I heard of an evangelical pastor recently. I can't remember who was telling me this week, but I think this is probably not uncommon. A, a pastor of a church has now reduced his preaching load to two Sundays a month. So why? So he could accompany his son to baseball games. And this is apparently has become a big deal. I just read an article about this. Sunday sports um, have become a huge issue for Christians, for Christian parents. Children are now, they, they plan tournaments and, and games on the Sabbath. And, and you can imagine how this pastor, if you confronted him about this, how he would respond. If, if this is his practice, if he's devalued not only this, this, the, the Lord's Day, but his own role in it, as a minister of the gospel, how he would respond. What would his argument be if you challenged him? Well, he'd probably say something like, well, come on, we're not under the law. We're under grace. We're not under the law, but under grace. It says, in fact, in Colossians chapter 2, that no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or a respective festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Judge not that you be not judged. And he might go on to say that worship, in fact, is an all-of-life experience. It encompasses everything we do. There's no corner of our lives that isn't properly seen under this, the category of worship. It's not, it's not a religion. It's a relationship. And I take my relationship with the Lord everywhere I go, to the ball field, to the movies, to worship, if that's... You know what floats your boat? And isn't this what John was te- or Jesus was teaching us in John chapter 4? That there's, this is the key distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? That, that religion is, was once about like ceremonies and rituals, and now in the New Covenant it's about a relationship? And furthermore, we're supposed to be salt and light to the world. And look! If Christians pull out of sports, Sunday sports, what a missed opportunity. I mean, how are we going to fulfill, after all, our obligation to witness to the gospel, to be salt and light to the world? If we're not there, we're just going to huddle off in our corner and not love the lost. How are we going to fulfill the Great Commission? By worshiping on Sunday. Well, and anyone who tries to counter bad arguments like that, and they are really bad, but anybody who tries to counter them is, finds himself up against a narrative problem. <coughs> Someone has written the narrative in favor of this line of reasoning. Because if you're going to argue against those arguments in favor of Sabbath keeping, you're going to come up against Laura Ingalls Wilder. who tells a story of how back in grandpa's day there were no jokes allowed on the Sabbath you couldn't even smile you couldn't run it was a day for stillness and sobriety strictness everyone sat together on a bench 
against the wall, quietly studying their catechism the whole day. What a bunch of tightwad legalists. This is the narrative. This is the interpretation that, that our culture, our authors, have put on Sabbath keeping. That's what you must be advocating if you're going to become an advocate for the Sabbath. And so you're up against a really serious narrative problem. So I've had trouble deciding how on earth we approach this issue. Trying to rebuild the ruins of the Sabbath is both a thankless job. At every point, it seems like there's somebody ready with a yeah, but. But it's also an overwhelming job because lots of ink has been spilled about it. Very sophisticated systems have been developed to explain theological systems that frameworks of scripture people have developed to at the, and the key is what is the sabbath and how it's all about the sabbath it drives entire theological systems and so if you're going to try to engage with the sabbath doctrine you're you've got a pile of work to do so it, if you'll allow me maybe this will be a disappointment to you perhaps you you came loaded for bear I only want to do three simple things. One of them will be this afternoon, two of them this morning. And they won't be well done. They'll just be scripture speaking for itself. I want to take a different approach. I want to argue just these three basic points. That Number one, that God is pleased to reveal himself most clearly and powerfully in the corporate assembly of his people. That's point number one, that he meets with us when we gather together. That it's, he has established his covenant with his people, and the, the theme of his covenant is always, throughout scripture, is I will be your God and you will be my people. And he is pleased to reveal himself most clearly and powerfully in the corporate assembly. That's point number one. Point number two is that this self-revelation of God is accomplished through the normal means of grace. That is biblical preaching, ordinances or the sacraments, and Christian fellowship and prayer. But this is how God goes about the work of revealing himself. And then we'll hopefully make, have time to make a couple applications about the Sabbath and how to observe it. So point number one, God is pleased to reveal himself with unique clarity and power in the corporate assembly of his people. Listen to this. This is a poem. Some of you might have heard it. Emily Dickinson poem. Some keep the Sabbath going to church. It's an ominous beginning. <laughs> Some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home with a bobolink for a chorister. Anybody know what a bobolink is? It's a blackbird. And an orchard for a dome. Church roof. Some keep the Sabbath in surplus, which is vestments, holy garb. 
I just wear my wings. And instead of tolling the bell for church, our little sexton sings. I think she's still talking about the blackbird. God preaches. God preaches. A noted clergyman. And the sermon is never long. So instead of getting to heaven at last, I'm going all along. And then this from possibly my favorite living songwriter, Bob Dylan, from a poem he wrote called Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie. This is, it's a marvelous poem. This is how it ends. Your feet can only walk down two kinds of roads. Your eyes can only look through two kinds of windows. Your nose can only smell two kinds of hallways. You can touch and twist and turn two kinds of doorknobs. You can either go to the church of your choice or you can go to Brooklyn State Hospital. You'll find God in the church of your choice. You'll find Woody Guthrie in Brooklyn State Hospital. And though it's only my opinion, I might be right or wrong, you'll find them both in the Grand Canyon at sundown. Now, what they're saying is you can meet God best in nature. Now, has God revealed himself in nature? Yeah. Absolutely. Psalm 19 says it so clearly. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, and an implied but. But their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. So yes, nature declares the glory of God. But here's what Paul says about this declaring of the glory of God in Romans 1, verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. This is speaking of all men everywhere. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, the glory of God, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, theologians refer to God's self-revelation in nature as what? General revelation. General revelation, as opposed to special revelation, is directed to all men generally. It goes out, as the psalm says, through all the earth. It is also unceasing in its testimony. Day to day it reveals knowledge, and night to night it pours forth speech. Notice, though, in Romans 1, how the Apostle Paul says that this pouring forth in general revelation, um, what he says about it. He says that creation testifies to man of God's divine existence and eternal power, but is this knowledge of God enough to save the soul? No, it's enough what? to leave him without excuse so that God is just in his judgment, in his damnation of sinners. Paul goes on in Romans 1 to rebuke man for looking to nature as a medium for communion with the Lord. Creation is wholly inadequate to mediate between God and man because it is subject to man. It's not between man and God, it's beneath him. 
But this is what man does in his fallen state. He, quote, worships and serves the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So when Emily Dickinson is bragging that she keeps the Sabbath by walking through an orchard listening to blackbirds singing, claiming by these means that God himself preaches to her, she is confessing to be a godless idolater. Is it wrong to appreciate the glory of God in nature? No. Is it wrong to study it, to admire it? No, because no, God's glory is expressed there. But general revelation does not reveal what? Jesus Christ, salvation, hope for sin and sinners. General revelation is not sufficient to save your soul. Here's what R.B. Kuyper, one of the books that's on the tape, table out there, The Glorious Body of Christ, is that what it's called? The Glorious Body of Christ. He says this, General revelation, valuable though it is, does not tell men how they may be saved from sin and death. Special revelation tells them all they need to know on that all-important subject. So what is special revelation? Well, it consists, as the Westminster says, of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. This is special revelation, God's word. It is in the Bible alone that we learn about the person and work of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2. Now, here's the problem. We, all of us accept that. But immediately, once we recognize that we have to have the Bible to understand, to come to God through Jesus Christ, that apart from God's word being revealed to us, having it, we, we can't come to know God, we can't, there's no hope for us, there's only damnation and terrible expectation of judgment. When we, the problem is we all have Bibles on our shelves at home. Now, it's not a problem. This is a great blessing. <laughs> That, the printing, that God has given us through the printing press. It's not something that all Christians everywhere have enjoyed throughout history. It's unique to modern man. But it's also a problem. Why is it a problem? It tends to keep people away from corporate fellowship. That's right. If you had the choice between personal, private Bible reading and prayer or going to church, which would you choose? Church. Church. Well, you know that's the right answer. <laughs> but if you were an American evangelical who had not been well taught, which would you choose? There are many people that don't see the difference between going to a corporate assembly, the church, or sitting in front of TVN with their Bible, listening to somebody on TV. They don't recognize the difference. Our Reformed and evangelical fathers would have chosen church every time. Listen to this. Um, this is by James Bannerman. Bannerman. Uh, he wrote a two-volume work on the church. And it's a classic work, um, if not a little heady. So it's not for the faint of heart. But it's, just, it's a great source. The, uh, he was a Scotch Presbyterian. He said this. 
the outward provision which Christ has made for social Christianity, as embodied and realized in the communion of the church, is richer in grace and more abundant in blessing by far than the provision made for individual Christianity as, as embodied and realized in separate believers. So the, um, the, the, what is that, where is that? The provision which Christ has made for social Christianity is far richer and greater than the provision he's made for you individually with your Bible at home. That's what we want to see from God's word today. Here's what Calvin says. Many are led either by pride, dislike, or rivalry to the conviction that they can profit enough from private reading and meditation. They can profit enough from private reading and meditation. Hence, they despise public assemblies and deem preaching superfluous. But since they do their utmost to sever or break the sacred bond of unity, no one escapes the just penalty of this unholy separation without bewitching himself with pestilent errors and foulest delusions. Your personal interpretation of scripture, Calvin would call a, a pestilent error and a foul delusion. In order then that pure simplicity of faith may flourish among us, let us not be reluctant to use this exercise of religion, which God, by ordaining it, has shown us to be necessary and highly approved. And then there's this wonderful sermon, I hope you'll take the time to read, by David Clarkson, a Puritan, called Public Worship to be Preferred Before Private. And he opens up the scripture, Psalm 87, verse 2, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. And it's this wonderful sermon about all the many scriptural reasons why public worship is greatly to be preferred before private. Now, what about us? Which one would we choose? Public or private? Well, We'd be hard-pressed as Amer modern American evangelicals to know which way to go. Many of us are guilty or have been guilty in our lives of the kind of thinking that Calvin was rebuking earlier. The church has been taken captive. The church has been taken captive by the personal devotions, quiet time movement. Now, there's nothing wrong with personal devotions. Every man I just quoted to you outdoes you by leagues in personal devotions just because of their commitment to the centrality and uniqueness of corporate worship. It flows naturally from it that if you take God's worship and the means of grace seriously then you will try to foster throughout your week the experience that you had together Personally, You'll meditate upon it. You'll contemplate. You'll remember it. You'll pray. You'll look forward to the next gathering. You will have a powerful devotional life, a vital one. That's not an exclusive thing. There's, there's not, there is this huge thing in the middle. 
personal devotions, I'm afraid, have become the Sabbath keeping or the sacrament of modern evangelicalism, trumping, sometimes altogether replacing, the corporate assembly and the normal means of grace. Have you all noticed the lovely black woman in the corner of our parking lot, even this last Sunday morning, all through our worship? Have you not, have you, has nobody noticed her? Well, she's been there many mornings this week, and she, stand, she parks her car out in the back corner there, and she stands in the very corner, and she goes like this for a long time. And sometimes you'll see her pacing back and forth with her Bible. And she's, she's probably, John, your age, so a college-age student. And Max and Lucas went out one morning this past week and asked her if she was okay. <laughs> and she said, oh, yes, I'm practicing the presence which means she was having a personal, quiet time experience of devotion to the Lord. She was communing with God by herself through somewhat through nature, but also through special revelation of the Word, praying and singing for hours while we were worshiping. Then, of course, there's TV preachers that are available to you on, at home. And you can, you can have your church experience even online. My cousins, uh, I don't know if that should go on the recording or not, but my cousins worked, um, one of them still does, at a church in Las Vegas. And it's a huge church with satellite campuses. And um, my cousin's wife was very excited to have been given um, responsibility for overseeing and managing their online service. You can actually become a member of this online church service community that they provide for you, of course, with giving opportunities. Rick Warren-style evangelicalism um, is a problem. His purpose-driven life, the book, his, this is what he says. The best style of worship is the one that most authentically represents your love of God based on the background and personality God gave you. The, the best style of worship is the one that most authentically represents your love for God based on the background and personality God gave you. In another book, not by Rick Warren, but a man named Gary Thomas, who's published by Zondervan, it's a popular book called Sacred Pathways. He's, he argues there that in the, over the last 2,000 years, Christians have used at least nine different pathways to enjoy intimacy with God. There's the, the naturalist pathway. There's the Emily Dickinson pathway. If, if you're most inspired to love God through the out of doors and through nature, then you, you better give yourself to loving God through nature. There's the sensate pathway. Love of God that he loves God with his senses and appreciates beautiful worship services that involve their sight, taste, smell, and touch, not just ears. So complex and full-orbed full ministry of sensors and smells and bells. I don't know how this different, is different from the traditionalist, but traditionalists draw closer to God through rituals, liturgies, symbols, and unchanging structures. 
Then there's ascetics who prefer to love God in solitude and simplicity. And so on, activists, caregivers, enthusiasts, contemplatives, intellectuals. So you find your path, your pathway, your personality, your unique way God has made you for communion with him. And you give yourself to it. And not all of them will bring you to the church. Rick Warren also observes this. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to worship and friendship with God. One thing is certain. You don't bring glory to God by trying to be someone God never intended you to be. God wants you to be yourself. Now, the, the message of all of the, these men is clear. We worship God best by pursuing our passions. We worship God best by pursuing our passions, our interests. If church happens to be your interest, then by all means, church. If nature happens to be your interest, your passion, your God-given passion, then by all means, nature. If my wife were here, I, she could tell you about how dance was her God-given passion. And her and her friends gave themselves to communion with God through dance at the expense of church. This kind of thinking flows from exactly the wrong interpretation of Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman in John 4. This is a key thing. This is, this is very important. Seeing that Jesus must be some kind of prophet, remember this, the woman at the well? She asks him to settle this old argument that they've had between the Jews and the Samaritans, whether God is properly worshipped on their mountain in Jerusalem or on this mountain where they're sitting, where the Samaritans live. Jesus responds by saying, I tell you, a time is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, this is taken by many today to mean that Jesus is indicating that worship once was external and corporate and ritualized and ceremonial. And in the new covenant, a time is coming and now is. When the true worshipers, the true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit, according to the pathway. This is how evangelical Christians think of what Jesus is teaching there. But the context of his words, the argument, says something completely different. And the way we begin to see this is that this word translated worship in the text is misleading to our ears. What does it mean? In, in the original language. Anybody remember? David or Mike, do you remember? To bow down. To, bow down. to prostrate oneself. And so the question, and it, this is like a synecdoche, a symbol for corporate worship. Where does corporate worship happen appropriately, according to God's plan, is the argument. Where does corporate worship happen? Where do we bow down to the Lord? Is it in your temple or is it in our temple? On your mountain or on our mountain? 
Jesus is not teaching us that whereas worship under the law used to be essentially ritualized, physical and external, soon it will be spiritual, personal and internal. That's not what he's teaching. Eugene Peterson, who translated the message, the message Bible, translation, here's how he translated this verse. It's who you are and the way you live that counts before God. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. But here's the truth. This is a quote from a book that's really helped me. The author makes me incredibly nervous. His name is Jeff Myers. Do you know Jeff Myers? Who are you, by the way? You look familiar. Me? Yeah. Nathan Polderman. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Nathan. Yeah, St. Louis. He's a pastor in St. Louis, part of the Federal Vision Movement. Makes me incredibly nervous. But I think this is right on. Listen to this. The post-Pentecost situation. So, after the day of, or on the day of Pentecost, and ever after, would radically decentralize corporate worship. So what Jesus is, is teaching is that there is a radical decentralization of worship that is upon us, that is happening. Not individual worship. That had always been decentralized. Do you understand this? The, the lesson Jesus is teaching is not that worship was, was corporate and limited, and now it's individual and expansive. That's not the lesson. The lesson is worship was corporate and limited, and now it's corporate and expansive. The big change now would be, this is quoting Myers, that no longer would worshipers gather together only at Jerusalem, but the Spirit would be present wherever the church assembled in the name of Jesus. Jesus is not emphasizing the importance of one inner, one's inner emotional experience. Jesus is not saying, if you want to have genuine worship, you must participate with your innermost spirit. Now, that's a lesson the Bible teaches. Hold on. That's not what Jesus is teaching. There is nothing new about such an admonition. That would not be, that would be a, a non-starter. That has always been the case. You can see it throughout the Old Testament. God wants worship of the heart. He's not satisfied with worship of the body if it has nothing to do with your spirit, with your heart. It was true in the Old Testament that men worship, true worshipers worshiped in this way. But he was saying it's no longer going to be limited to Jerusalem. It's going to happen where? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, behold, I am there in their midst. Jesus was transferring all the significance of God's having manifested his presence at Sinai, all the significance of having manifested his presence at Sinai, thunder and lightning and it all and the power, and the glory, and the awesomeness, and the trembling. He was transferring all of that to where two or three are gathered in my name. I will manifest myself to them there, in the New Covenant, wherever they are in the world. In Africa, 
in New England, South America, and Hawaii. This is the same truth that the author of Hebrews is testifying to in Hebrews 12. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Hebrews 12. Listen to this. First, starting in verse 18. And Hebrews is about explaining the significance of the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And this is a glorious outworking of the basic, the heart of the principle that Jesus is teaching to the woman at, at Samaria. Hebrews 12, 18. For you've not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. This is what the, the Israelites did at Sinai. For they could not bear the command, quote, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned, end quote. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to your personal devotion time. But you have come to Mount, Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So, Never fear. Don't worry about it. Relax. Is that the application? No. So, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking in the church. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake, not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may be, remain. Therefore, therefore, here's the application. Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Jesus and the author of Hebrews are proving our first point. That God is pleased to reveal himself with unique clarity and power in the assembly of his people. David Clarkson, who wrote that sermon, public worship to be preferred before private, says this, the Lord has engaged to be with every particular saint. He has, each one of us individually. But when the particulars are joined in public worship, there are all the engagements united together. The Lord engages himself to let forth, as it were, a stream of his, comfort, com, uh, his comfortable quickening presence to each particular person that fears him. But when many of these particulars join together to worship God, 
then there, then these several streams are united and meet in one. So that the presence of God, which enjoyed in private, is but a stream, in public becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. The Lord has a dish for every particular soul that truly serves him, but when many particulars meet together, there is a variety, a confluence, a multitude of dishes. The presence of the Lord in public worship makes it a spiritual feast. And so it is expressed in Isaiah 25, 6, quote, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. Now, am I trying to discourage public devotion, or private devotions? No, absolutely not. They're essential to our growth and holiness, but God is pleased to reveal himself with unique clarity and power in the corporate assembly of his people. Now, all that by way of a long introduction to God's word. <laughs> I want us, you can pull out your sheet now. I want us to move on to the second point, which is really an extension of the first point. And it greatly enhances it, supports it. The second point is that this self-revelation of God in the assembly is accomplished through the normal means of grace which are available to us only in that setting. What do I mean by normal means of grace? I'll get in just a minute to the sheet. Well, Acts 2, Acts 2.42, the day of Pentecost, the Lord teaches us what these means of grace are in the New Covenant. So Peter's been preaching the gospel under the power of the Spirit. And they've been cut to the quick, and they cry out, what can we do to be saved? And he tells them that they're to be baptized, and so they're baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls, and they were continually, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the Word of God. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. These are corporate disciplines that they were doing, engaging in, they, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These are what we call the, the normal means of grace. And what we want to see now from God's word is that these, nor, these means are very powerful, potent, and public ordinances. So let's look at this category of the apostles' teaching, which comes first in the list and is the center of our lives and the things, all the other aspects, the devotions flow from this God's word. But we have to first see that this is in two aspects. One, the apostles and their teaching. These things go together. This is why personal private devotions are inadequate. Um, they're or by themselves, of themselves, inadequate. There are officers in the church. Now listen to this. In Acts 6, verses 1 to 4, the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve, the twelve apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. 
Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we see that the apostles have this unique responsibility to be devoted to, the, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Well, why? We're not going to read all of these in the interest of time. Let's go to Ephesians 4. It's on the next page. Ephesians chapter 4. Why? Why do they devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer? Paul says to the Ephesians that he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You can Do you want to grow up into a mature man, to the fullness of the measure? You want to have a full knowledge of the Son of God? Well, it comes to you by way of God's apostles, his prophets, his evangelists, his pastors, and his teachers who have devoted themselves to the study of God's word and to prayer. A um, couple more. The next one, Colossians 1, 25-29. Paul says again about the church. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. This is the mystery, the hope of glory. We proclaim him. So it's a mystery that resides in you, but it's proclaimed to you by men. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me says Paul, as a minister. So there's something in all of us that has to be nourished, fostered, imparted, implanted, taught, fanned. <laughs> and it's the special work that God of ministers whom God has set aside to give themselves to that. That they, it's their, the work of their lives to go around fanning the flame of God's work in you and to admonish you and to teach you and to see you grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. And look, God has empowered him for it. And here's how we're to regard them in their ministry. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Speaking of the apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers, stewards of the mysteries of God.
we're going to have to go on. You can, you'll have those. You can take that home and look at those verses. So in the apostles' teaching, look what the promises that attend. These are a few of the promises that attend the preaching of God's <coughs> word. 1 Peter chapter 4. As each one has received a special gift in the church, each one of us, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. This is what John Calvin says. Every time the gospel is preached, it is as if God himself came in person solemnly to summon us. What did Emily Dickinson say? God preaches to her in nature. No. God preaches to her through Tim Bailey, through Jody Killingsworth. And this, is, this is a radical thought. I began a sermon recently with just that verse, because it's like a humbling thing. I'm to speak as one who's speaking the mysteries of God, and you're to receive it as such. Um, this is, yeah, in the next verse, James 1, 21, he, uh, James commends the saints um, for having in humility received, or he exhorts them to in humility receive the word implanted. As if God is speaking is what, was what Calvin says. Let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. Yeah, this is one of the best. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, Emily Dickinson. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Through the foolishness of the message read at home with coffee? No, through the foolishness of the message preached to save. Now, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's a matter of first priority. And look at the promises that attend it. That there are, there are men set apart to steward the flame that, that Christ has implanted in us. And, and, to, um, and they, to preach the word, which is, it says in one of these places, one of those verses, which is able to save your souls. It is able to save your souls. But they also devoted themselves to the sacraments, to the breaking of bread. Um, they were baptized, Acts 2.38 says, that we don't like verses like this, okay? This, this, these verses make us uncomfortable, but listen to what God has said in terms of promises associated with baptism. Peter said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And not only that, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Potent. Potent stuff. The Lord's Supper, breaking of bread. We, we see the potency of the Lord's Supper, both by positive instruction and negative example. Let's, in, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 26 when he 
was in the upper room. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. First Corinthians ten sixteen, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Powerful stuff. The London Baptist Confession there, I don't remember why I put this in. Well, I'll read it and see what it's there for. Chapter 28 says, These holy appointments, that is baptism and the Lord's Supper, are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. Now I see why I put it in. These two are part of the ministry that's unique to pastors in the church that's available to you when the church gathers for worship. Sharing in the body and the blood of Christ is not something that's possible for you in this way through these means at any other time or place, but comes to you as a function of God calling us to worship and setting apart men to administer it and to oversee it. We also see the potency of the Lord's Supper negative by negative example in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That is, have died. Stewards of the mysteries. <clears throat> Your pastors, shepherds, elders. And these mysteries are powerful, both negatively and positively. Listen, it goes on. As an extension of these things, we have, we have to understand that church discipline is implied in the administration of the sacraments, and anytime we talk about them, there's a division that happens. It's at the heart of the sacrament. It divides people. In church discipline, um, which is part of fellowship, right? 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 to 5, Paul says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, myriads of angels, He's not there, but he's with them in spirit. Communion of saints. With the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one, this sinner in their midst, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What an amazing verse. I've decided to cast him out giving him over to Satan so that his spirit will be saved. Discipline, potent stuff. It's a means of God's grace. It was for this man, he was restored. What a unique blessing is afforded us in the church. You want your spirit to be saved? 
And then those elders who continue in sin, this is 1 Timothy 5, are to be rebuked in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Church discipline is, is effective stuff. You see an elder rebuked in the presence of everyone for his sin, you'll be afraid to sin. How are you going to learn that at home with your Bible? You're going to read that verse and get the point? If you've... No. <laughs> You're not going to get it on the television. <laughs> That's right. We've had the privilege of seeing men stand before us and be rebuked. And has it made us fearful of sinning? a unique blessing. I told one man who was undergoing it as I sat with him in the moments leading up to the service as he knew what he was going to face and the shame and the humiliation of it. I told him, you're my hero. I'm so thankful for you. This is going to be a wonderful day. In fact, I'm reminded of something that um, was said as he was called up forward. Max called him forward and he, he quoted Achan, the story of Achan, and he said, come and give glory to God. Achan is, it says something like, come tell us what you, give glory to God, tell us what you've done, something like that. In fellowship, Fellowship is uniquely available to us when we gather, right? No duh? Well, listen to the promises associated with it. Let's find a good one. <laughs> oh, goodness. Let's read it. First Peter 4.10, is that what you meant? Yeah. As each one, what? As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Yeah. Use it and receive it. Part of the manifold grace of God. That's... I have a part of, and you have a part of, and you have a part of, and we are to give it and receive it so that we can receive the grace of God from one another in the church. Romans 15 speaks of the unity of the church. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. You can be, ex like, there's an implication here, if you will, that in accepting one another, we testify and preach and proclaim to each other the acceptance we have received from the Lord. Isn't that a grace? Last Sunday I was preaching on adultery. And one of the cures of adultery was the fact that as a church we don't condone sin. But as a church we must accept the repentant sinner. 
as they come into the church. And we must build them up and we must um, disciple them and we must teach them. You know, it, it's once one comes to God, we've all been there. And there's an, a sin in the Bible that as Christians we cannot commit at one point in time in our life. Above all, we know where they've been. And we should stand beside them once they repent and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And stand beside them and not continue to reject them, which happens a lot in the church. Yeah. Let's go on to another part of singing and also of, or of, of fellowship and also of prayer. I think we see both aspects at work here. Psalm 22, verse 3 says, You are holy, speaking of the Lord, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. So when Israel sings together, the Lord is enthroned upon it. Remember our first principle? Our first point, the Lord is pleased to manifest himself uniquely, clarity and power in the corporate assembly. And here we have it tied to singing in particular. Colossians 3.16, and this is fellowship and singing and praise working together. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You can teach and admonish. We can, be te we can be taught and admonished by one another in corporate worship. Then also in prayer, James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So that you may be healed. You can't confess your sins to yourself. The promise is, is attends the confessing of sins to one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, those are just some of the verses, some of the promises attending the normal means of grace, the, the, the simple devotions that the early Christians devoted themselves to. And there's just one question, really, at the end, two questions that I want to ask. If all that's true, why would you ever, ever miss it? Why would you ever, ever miss it? As Tim said, um, last night, look for ways to fill up your, your Lord's day with the church. Why would you ever miss it? I mean, ever. One time. He's here. He's here. His grace, his, his salvation, his healing, his encouragement, his fear is here in one another, in the, 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 the teaching of the apostles and the ministry of the pastors to us, in singing of songs, God himself meets with us. And what a testament to our impiety, to our lack of faith, when we devalue that assembly for any reason. I've Oh, we got to be done? Okay. 
Second thing to ponder then, in closing, why aren't we doing everything we can to get people here? Well, we say it's not for evangelism, it's for the saints. Oh, really? God manifests himself someplace and that's only for the Christians? I mean, it says, I wish I had put it in here. What, what is that verse that I'm thinking of? What is it? Read it, David. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 14.23, it's in there on one of your pages. If the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. It is the pinnacle of evangelistic opportunities. I mean, it just does not get any more cut to the quickish, potent than that. Those are, read those as promises, and maybe we'll get excited about bringing people to church. It says, he will. If all prophesy, he will. Isn't that amazing? Let's have faith, both for ourselves. Let's have Zion be our chiefest joy. Let's whistle all week at the thought of gathering together again and meeting with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in our appreciation of what you have promised to us uniquely in the assembly of the righteous. Give us grace, Lord, to put aside our worldly desires and thoughts and the things that compete for your glory, and give ourselves to uh, the work, the corporate work of your church, um, so that we can receive the benefits that are there for us. Help us, Lord, also to have faith to bring our neighbors, indeed everyone we know, to experience that with us. And would you be pleased, Lord, to, um, to spread, to build your kingdom through our work together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.